Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode number 39 of the Know Your Physio podcast. I'm your host, Andres Prichel, and today's guest is Alan Aragon, one of the living legends in the health and fitness space, one of the forefathers of the If It Fits Your Macros IIFYM movement. He's got over 20 years of experience and success in this field as a nutrition researcher and educator, and he's one of the most influential figures in the fitness industry's movement towards evidence-based content creation. He actually inspired me very early on as an evidence-based content creator. If you follow him on Instagram, you know what I'm talking about. His content is awesome and it's based on all the best and latest. Our conversation today is cool because it explores some of the best and latest related to protein sourcing and bioavailability for muscle growth, the protein requirements for maximizing muscle protein synthesis response, and how protein intake influences longevity, how to eat and train to increase your VO2 max, and how much muscle you need to put on to live your best and your longest, and and so much more. And it was really fun having uh, Alan on the show and made for some incredible conversation. And Definitely inspired a ton of questions that I hope to ask him in a part two of this podcast. And we plan to do it in the near future. If you guys have any questions, please be sure to DM me, send me an email, and I'll be sure to ask them on our next episode. So with all that said, let's go ahead and jump right in. I hope you guys enjoy, and I'll see you on the other side. This podcast is powered by Biostrap, the most clinically validated wearable device, health, and sleep tracker. With Biostrap, you can count on research-grade biometric analysis to make the best evidence-based decisions unique to you regarding all things health and fitness. I wear my Biostrap every day. Their HIPAA-compliant platform allows me to monitor exactly how my physiology responds to all of the lifestyle habits, wellness protocols, and biohacks I implement in my daily routine. And through their advanced remote monitoring platform, I get to see the same for the people I follow in-app. No matter where my clients, closest friends, or family members are in the world, I can see exactly how their physiology is responding to all my advice, recommendations, and everything else that I learn through the awesome guests I get to host on this podcast. It's the ultimate tool for getting to know your physio. For the nerds, aka most of you guys, here is a scientific breakdown of the device that you can surely appreciate. So raw waveform data enables in-depth analysis of your health using powerful cloud-based algorithms. Proprietary red and infrared optimal sensors capture high signal-to-noise and high-resolution photoplethysmography or PPG measurements from deep beneath the skin up to 10 times deeper than green light to extract reliable biometrics. The proprietary pulse engine assesses each pulse wave versus 29 unique parameters to provide processed data with the highest data integrity and reliability. And trending nocturnal biometric data provides the ultimate insight into positive or maladaptive physiological changes. Data integrity is of the utmost importance when relied upon for risk stratification, data-driven decision-making, and progress monitoring. Biostrap is referenced in 14 publications and 22 clinical studies validating biometric measurements against gold standard medical diagnostic equipment and applied use cases for specific medical conditions. When it comes to your personal health, fitness, and performance, it counts to interpret and apply only the most reliable evidence-based data unique to you. That's why I choose Biostrap and why I recommend it invariably to all my friends, family, clients, fans, and followers who are curious about their biometric data as they get to know their physio. 
So you can go to biostrap.com and use code UNDRESS10 to get 10% off your entire order. That's biostrap.com, B-I-O-S-T-R-A-P.com and use code UNDRESS10, A-N-D-R-E-S and the number 10 to get 10% off your entire order. One more time, that's biostrap.com, B-I-O-S-T-R-A-P.com, code UNDRESS10 for 10% off your entire order. Hope you guys enjoy and I'll see you on the other side. So I'm here with Alan Aragon, one of the legendary forefathers of the evidence-based movement in the fitness industry, one of the original creators of the IIFYM movement, the If It Fits Your Macros movement, and someone that's inspired me in so many ways as an evidence-based content creator. Actually, one of the reasons why I started podcasting, why I felt so motivated to make the kind of content that I make online for you guys. And so having him here on the show really goes full circle. We have a lot of really exciting questions that we've compiled online. So we'll make sure to get through all those and do the research justice while making it applicable for you guys so you can enjoy some of the amazing things that Alan has to share. So welcome, Alan, to the show. It's such an honor to have you here with us today. Andres, thank you so much, dude. And it really is an honor for me to hear that I influenced your path in that way. So thanks right back to you. Can we begin with the evidence-based content creation and why you took on this role? Originally, you were working not for the masses, so to speak. You weren't really content creating for the masses. You were helping people take a more individualized approach. You were a practitioner in the fitness and nutrition industry. Can you tell us how you evolved and how you took on the, the role of making this kind of content creation for, for the masses? For about 10 years, I was in private practice in personal training and nutritional counseling before the, the early 2000s. So like 1992-ish to about 2002 or 2003, I was in the trenches working full-time with clients. Then the message boards or the bodybuilding forums, they started really flourishing in the early 2000s. And that's when I saw the scope and the scale of, of the demand for good information, for high-quality, science-based, research-based information. And I saw the absence of that. And it was really interesting because during that time in the early 2000s, 2003 to 2005 or so, I was moderating the bodybuilding.com forums. And I was <laughs> debating and arguing with a lot of my, my current friends today, like, like Lane Norton. I, I would just have these three-day-long debates with him about branched-chain amino acids and I can't even begin to imagine what that must have been like with Lane Norton in the early days where there was no such thing as, you know, profanity <laughs> online and, and the algorithm working against you. I mean, that must have been, I wish I could dig those up. It, it was, it was fun. You know, it was fun. It was really the beginnings of people just having some discourse and yeah, it got heated. It, there was a particular time when I was arguing with Lane Norton about BCAA supplementation and I was on the side of it being pretty useless and he was on the side of it being beneficial. And, uh, uh, and then Mark Lobliner jumps in and defends Lane. And I'm arguing with both of these bros. And fast forward to almost 20 years later, and we're all three of us are, are good friends, you know, and we uh, agree on a lot more than, than we used to. 
we agreed on most things back in 2005 as well. So it's been a journey. So my point about bringing that story up is that's where it started. It started on the forums, on the message boards. And Facebook didn't really kick in for me personally. I didn't start getting active on social media as we know it today until about 2010, 2011. Once um, Facebook kind of crushed the message boards and everybody left over to go to Facebook, that's really when the whole fitness connection with social media, connection with disseminating good information really kind of caught fire. So that last decade, 2012 to the present day, that's when things really picked up momentum for my career anyway. And the whole evidence-based movement really just kind of caught fire from that point on. And that's really the nutshell version of of how the evidence-based movement exploded. And I I have to uh, include mention of guys like Lyle McDonald back in uh, 2005, 2007. He was one of the first guys who was a stickler for having some kind of a research evidence base for the claims that you make regarding nutrition and exercise. And then it, it just it rolled forward from there. I forgot what year I got on Instagram, but I I could have been around 2015, maybe. I don't know. But yeah, Facebook really sort of started dying off in the last three-ish years while Instagram started blowing up. And of course, you know, a bunch of the fitness folks and the influencers and stuff are on TikTok now. And I still have not been able to drop my ego and and get on TikTok. (laughs) I I still haven't been able to just swallow, crush my pride and all sense of dignity and go on TikTok. You know, you have to dance when you talk about nutrition on TikTok if you want the videos to go viral and to do the research justice, right? I 100% agree. I'm just not cute enough to dance and point (laughs) at the words. I am not cute enough. So, uh, so my, my project is to get cute enough. <laughs> well, sp- talking about debates, can you tell us what it takes to have a good debate online without creating enemies and how we can sort of come together to really bring forward this evidence-based movement? Aside from just the basic respect stuff, one of the fundamental things is really listening to what the other person is trying to say. Like really listen to the other side, the other position. And not only that, but try to understand the position, try to understand what they're trying to say and the claim that they're trying to make. So when you're debating with somebody, or I like to think of it as having a discussion, if you think of it as a debate, then you kind of go in antagonistically. So if you think of it as as a discussion where uh, one or both of you can potentially learn some new stuff or at least get some great ideas for further investigation when you're done arguing online, then that's really the key to a productive discussion is kind of how you go into the debate with the attitude that it's a discussion with the attitude that you both might learn something. And also genuinely listening to the other side and trying to understand the other side instead of just having this sort of one-way street where you're asserting your beliefs and shutting out any kind of listening or giving the other side any kind of chance to potentially be correct on one or more of their points. And that being said, you know, if everyone comes to these debates or makes their comments or maybe repost something with their 
with their feedback, you know, and they're bringing forward this evidence that they've looked at. How do we do an individualized approach justice in these conversations if the evidence-based approach that we know looks at averages? So like if two people are having a conversation and at the end of the day, it really just comes down to, hey, what works best for the individual? How do you do your one-sided research, so to speak, justice? It has some kind of bias. How can the average person interpret that or maybe see the conversation and go, hey, what really works for me? What would you say to that individual? I mean, an individual response overrides everything, even published research. And with any debate or with any discussion, the way you frame your assertions is, is always key, is always critical. So all you have to do is say, okay, I'll, I'll grant you that personal experience. But as we discuss the research, if it's understood that we're discussing the research base right now, we're going to have to reserve those personal anecdotes for a different conversation because I've been in practice for over 20 years and I have a million anecdotes I can talk about, a million observations of a wide range of different responses that I've seen. But there's always going to be a set of uh, biases that go into the relaying of anecdotes and confirmation bias not being the least of them. Let's keep the fireside testimonials at bay for a moment, and let's just talk about the the weight of the research evidence and see how strong that is. Sometimes there's just one or two studies on a given subject, and we can be more uh, speculative about things. But if there is a strong evidence base for a particular phenomenon, then we need to point that out, and we, and we need to acknowledge that, and, and then we can discuss it. And so before we dive in to some of the protein and longevity and high performance and maximizing your functional muscle capacity, can we speak a little bit about how in these massive research trials that teach us a lot about these claims that we make online, that we defend online, can we talk about how when it comes to protein, a lot of these trials and research studies are using protein powder because it's cheaper and although it's high quality, meaning it has, you know, very highly bioavailable, a wide range of, of, of amino acids, does that mean that that is the best protein source for building muscle and maximizing your muscle capacity? Like, maybe this is a better way to frame the question. If you take those same trials that we believe in and that we defend our claims with regarding all things protein and fitness, if we took the same trials and instead of protein powder, we replace that with high quality grass-fed, grass-finished steak. How different would the results be and how different would our positions be in making these claims? That is a great question, dude. And I think that it would all depend and it may differ with the source of protein. The little evidence that we do have shows that when we're looking at outcome like, like muscle growth or changes in body composition, we have very little data to go on as far as direct comparisons of the effects of the different protein sources, be it protein powder like whey or chicken or beef. In fact, there's only one study I know of, potentially two, but definitely one study I know of, and not more than two, that have examined protein versus chicken versus whey administered in the post-workout period on body composition outcomes. There were no significant differences between the, the treatments. 
it would be potentially a whole different scenario if the entire diet was consisting of the protein sources that were compared, but we're looking at a single meals protein source in the day and how that might influence body composition. And they didn't see any um, significant differences. And that is all we really have to go on for the time being. But then once we've established that, okay, there's likely no difference between those things when you compare a single meals protein source on body composition. But if we were to design another experiment that was a little bit more robust and rigorous and, and exploitive in how differences in protein source, let's say across the, the course of the, the entire day, like three meals, how that might influence body composition in different ways, then, then we can potentially speculate that if we compared just pro a protein powder treatment with something like steak or something like chicken for all the meals, okay, understanding that this is a highly artificial type of environment that we're creating, but, but we're just investigating a, a particular question here. Well, then maybe the, the solid food, the protein that needs to be chewed for a while, and the protein that would at least hypothetically provide greater satiety might drive down total energy intake and, and maybe lead to more fat loss than, than the powder treatment that you're having the whole day. So, so yeah, that's how I would, that's how I would kind of explore that one. To be clear, we don't yet have the answer because it's just, there's just so many variables to consider. And I, I really like how you highlighted that it's, all right, what are we doing for the rest of the meals? You know, that's maybe that's in the post-workout condition, but what are we doing for the rest of the meals? Let me ask you a little bit more about the, the post-workout meal. People ask me this question all the time. How much protein can we actually use up? How much do we need to get the most of our workout session to repair uh, muscle fiber, to make gains, so to speak? How much should we get? Is there a minimum threshold and is there a maximum threshold? How individual is it? So if we're talking specifically in the post-exercise period where the anabolic response or the muscle protein synthetic response has a higher degree of uh, sensitization or receptivity to protein feeding, then we can take a look at doses that potentially max out this muscle protein synthesis or MPS response. And there's a whole history in the literature of this line of investigation where 20 to 25 grams in, in younger subjects on lower volume exercise programs was dishing out a consistent ceiling of 20 to 25 grams of protein where muscle protein synthesis would be maxed out. And, you know, even before I continue that, I have to say that we, we have to make a distinction between the maximal amount of protein that you can digest and absorb and use throughout the body versus the maximal amount of protein that, that will cause a maximal level of muscle protein synthesis. Those are two different things because just because let's imagine, let's, let's go with the old school thought that 20 to 25 grams maxed out muscle protein synthesis. Even given that, there, let's say you consume double that amount, then the rest of the protein doesn't just go to waste or go to waste as, as heat or excreted downstream metabolites of the protein. That part is just not true. So there's this longstanding misconception that any amount of protein that doesn't go to 
muscle protein synthesis is a waste. And so you wasted your, your money and your protein by consuming more than 20, 25 grams. So I want to first establish that that's a myth. What also is a myth is the 20 to 25 grams belief that was, gosh, it was prevalent for a good 15, 20 years in the sports science community, that that was the limit of protein that would cause a maximal anabolic response. So what we've found, well, thanks to McNaughton and colleagues as of a few years ago, is that that 20, 25-ish gram amount was pushed up to about 40 grams. And this was by virtue of a, a higher volume training session that was underwent before administering the protein dose. And this was in young subjects. So prior to McNaughton's study that showed that 40 grams of protein outperformed 20 grams of protein for MPS response. Prior to that, we had the knowledge that older subjects have a more stubborn anabolic response to the degree that you had to dose them higher with protein, like 35-ish, 40-ish grams to get the same MPS response that we'd see with 20 to 25 grams in younger subjects. Okay, so kind of zigzagging back to McNaughton and colleagues, we were able to dose younger subjects at 40 grams in the post-exercise period and max out their muscle protein synthesis response. So McNaughton and colleagues kind of broke a, a very long-standing belief that 25, 20 grams of protein was the limit. Okay, now with all of that said, there's still research done on older subjects showing that doses of up to 0.6 grams per kilogram were required to maximize the muscle protein synthetic response in, in older subjects. Okay, so that's about double, triple what we previously thought. And then Kim and colleagues also saw similar stuff in older subjects. And this is muscle protein synthesis. And because of this late breaking research, kind of shaken up our, our pre-existing beliefs, we have to kind of bow down to the evidence and say, you know what, maybe the limit is not 20 to 25. Maybe it's not even 40. Maybe it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 grams that would max out the MPS response in the most stubborn of populations, older populations. It wouldn't hurt anyway to dose younger subjects with, with 50, 60 gram doses at a time. It wouldn't hurt them anyway, so be, because there's bound to be some outlying responders that, and this goes back to your previous point, when study results are reported in studies, the, the average is reported, the mean, the mean value is reported, and there are always going to be subjects who show responses that are hyper and hypo responsive, so above or below the mean. And there are going to be subjects who are just outliers in terms of their response up on the, on the high side, as well as the low side. I would rather err on the side of caution and dose protein higher when in doubt in order to cover the possibility that you, you may be that kind of responder who maximizes their results by not looking at the mean value reported in the literature of 25 grams or, or whatever it might be, or even in the more recent literature, like 40-ish grams, because there are specific outliers who have responded to higher doses than that. So 
with all of that out of the way, my friend and colleague Brad and I, Brad Schoenfeld, we wrote a paper on this exact topic. What's the maximal protein dosing that'll elicit a maximal anabolic response? And we boiled that recommendation down to 0.4 to 0.6 grams per kilogram of body weight in terms of per meal protein dosing. And that would be over the course of four meals at the minimum. And that's because the maximal total daily protein amount that, that'll max out muscle growth appears to be somewhere between 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram of body weight. And that translates to 0.7 to 1.0 grams per pound of body weight. And so our per meal protein dosing recommendation kind of fits into that frame. If you look at 0.4 to 0.55, we'll just round it up to 0.6 grams per kilogram of body weight taken four times in the course of the day, that will amount to 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram of body weight total for the day. You're highlighting something that I maybe, maybe I should make explicit is the total protein intake is at the end of the day more important than what you're getting immediately post-workout. That would be at the, the top of the hierarchy of importance is total daily protein. The extreme end per meal would be something like 50 grams, around 50 grams. Yeah, potentially. <laughs> you know, they, they've actually tested 70 grams of protein versus 35 grams of protein. Kim and colleagues tested this. 70 grams outperformed 35. It's like, do we know that it's 50? <laughs> In some cases, it might be more. Um, a, a lot of the guys who, researchers who have been doing the protein research, they're very uh, reluctant to accept even the idea that that 70 grams of protein would be the limit. They, they would take a look at the 35 versus 70 comparison and point to a bunch of other research and say, you know what, it's got to be just a little bit over 35 that outperformed it. But I'm, I'm not so sure about that because we we need to look at the question a little more thoroughly with the different populations, different uh, exercise protocols. And I always think that it's fine to err on, this, on the high side as long as you're pacing yourself properly with, with protein and hitting the totals. So as long as you hit the totals, that's most important. Then the timing stuff is secondary. And so given some of the earlier research that you mentioned on this topic, it seems to me, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me like the protein requirements for maximizing muscle protein synthesis depend on the volume and intensity of the workout session, according to some of the research that you mentioned, and that this is like a sliding scale according to age, as in, you know, you need to incrementally increase these amounts, no matter where they fall in that spectrum, as you age. Because the anabolic response and anabolic hormones as we age tend to diminish. So is that a correct interpretation of some of the research that you just mentioned? Yes, that's correct. And, and I would also add that the muscle protein synthesis response to protein feeding diminishes in old muscle. <laughs> so older folks, and it's not a, an inherent effect of time. It's mainly an effect of uh, detraining or disuse. And so as folks get older, they, and they don't train as much and they don't train as hard, they almost reach a, a revisitation of being an untrained person. <laughs> and interestingly, 
in the literature as a whole, protein supplementation is, is actually more effective in trained subjects versus untrained subjects. And this is because with trained subjects, you need a little extra push beyond the bare bones in order to elicit further anabolic response. Interestingly, older folks with disuse, with various health complications that may diminish their, their training protocols, then their muscle protein synthetic response to protein feeding, it diminishes as well. So it's not necessarily just an anabolic hormone thing, but also a muscle protein synthetic response thing that decreases in, in the older population. For the sake of muscle protein synthesis, there, I wanted to share something with you. I don't know if you've come across this in the past, but there was a there's like a documentary that uh, Zach Efron is doing. I forget the name of the, the documentary. And they, they spoke to these like longevity experts, these scientists that made the claim that apparently consuming too much protein can work against you from a longevity perspective because you're constantly stimulating muscle protein synthesis and creating this anabolic environment where cancer can flourish, right? And so I'm thinking maybe for some people that's the case, maybe not, but considering how important it is to maintain and even gain muscle as we age and how much harder it becomes, shouldn't we prioritize a high protein intake? So considering that, how would you answer this question? So there's two ways that you can look at the protein and longevity issue. And one camp sees protein as a threat to longevity because they're looking at things like molecular signaling and things like mTOR, IGF-1, and how, how those factors affect longevity. And they have been shown to decrease longevity, but in lower life forms. I'm talking about in worms, and flies, and some data in rodents as well. So when you look at, at those micro-mechanistic processes with lower life form data, then you can form a hypothesis that, well, the stimulation of mTOR and IGF-1 is potentially a bad thing because it interferes with longevity. Okay. Well, the big leap of logic that's made, and I would uh, contend that it's a misguided leap, is that we need to lowball our protein intake in order to maximally prolong lifespan. And the reason why that's false is because there is a really painful lack of human data on this hypothesis. And in contrast, there's a ton of human data showing that if we optimized musculoskeletal conditions, if we optimize the environment for the musculoskeletal system to be maximally functional and thriving, then we can not only maximize lifespan, but we can also maximize health span. So the actual vigor and functionality and capability of the human organism while you're alive, instead of just seeing just how long we can drag out the, your years on the planet. So I am not diametrically opposed to the longevity community's approach to protein, but very strongly opposed in many ways. You can look at it this way. The number one killer in the developed world is cardiovascular disease. In terms of non-infectious diseases, okay, <laughs> although people's bad habits can rub off on others, the main non-communicable disease killer 
in the developed world is cardiovascular disease, heart disease. And so if we can dietary programming wise and exercise programming wise, if we can do whatever we can to maximize cardiometabolic health, then we have to start with the musculoskeletal system, which just by default is, is the dictator or the driver of what we can do with the cardiorespiratory system. So when we maximize the functionality and, and the strength, if you will, of the musculoskeletal system, then all of the positive longevity aspects just radiate and bleed out from that. So my approach would be a what Wolf and, and colleagues and more perhaps would, would call a muscle-centric approach. You get it right with the musculoskeletal system, and then you can do what you need to do with cardiovascular adaptations. And from that point, you can best prolong lifespan and health span. Looking at protein, the effect of protein in worms and flies affecting lifespan is just way too big of a leap to say, oh, don't, don't go much over the RDA of protein because otherwise you're going to compromise your longevity as a human. And if you even look at studies that compare the RDA with double the RDA, not a staggeringly high amount of protein, okay, 1.6 grams per kilogram versus 0.8 grams per kilogram. And the longevity camp is really stuck on the RDA. Well, the 1.6 grams per kilogram intake imparts a range of superior clinical outcomes, including body composition and strength outcomes. So that right there is, is more than a big enough hint that the RDA is insufficient for optimizing health. So yeah, I, I'm very much opposed to the longevity camp who's pushing low protein and those guys don't even lift, bro. <laughs> uh, I was not expecting that. <laughs> I love that. You know, when you say like maximizing your functional muscle capacity, does that mean that everyone's going to walk around yoked? Does that mean that, you know, people should start considering other forms and other means to maximize muscle growth as like steroids or SARMs or where's the happy medium for longevity? If we're really speaking on, a, on the sake of longevity, how do we accomplish that? Is everyone going to be jacked? And before you answer that question, I wanted to share something because I know you've spoken a lot about maximizing functional muscle capacity. But what I haven't heard you speak a lot about is if you take an endurance athlete, for example, take like a, like a cyclist or a cross-country skier, they have the highest VO2 max, it's the highest rates of oxygen consumption. And VO2 max, as we know, it is one of the most highly correlated measures with longevity, except these elite endurance athletes aren't yoked. They're super, super fit, but they haven't maximized their muscle, their functional muscle capacity, perhaps maybe with type one slow twitch muscle fiber, but not type two fast twitch, which is also highly associated with longevity. So where do we find the happy medium of VO2 max type two muscle fiber? And how can the average person actually attain this naturally to live longer? So, you know, you and I were talking earlier about debates online and, and how to have a productive debate and discussion without without creating any hard feelings and making an enemy out of the person you're talking to. Don't worry. You you won't you won't offend me. Don't worry. So so this is my opportunity to say that those are really good questions and we truly don't have the answers to those questions. So 
in my speculations, you can achieve a similar longevity result with both of those two tracks. You can achieve a spectacular longevity result with maximizing endurance adaptations, and you can achieve a spectacular longevity result with maximizing hypertrophic adaptations and everything in between, including the, like the super athlete who has a high level in both the, the strength and endurance sides. And I'm going to introduce another model, which would be the Okinawan type model where everybody is just skinny as hell and just kind of walking around and gardening all day. And they, they, they're not maximizing endurance adaptations. They're not maximizing strength adaptations, but they're staying lean and they're staying psychologically fit. And they also have eating habits that are conducive to mitigating cardiovascular risk. So we have those three models. We have those guys get maximally jacked. We have those guys getting maximally David Goggins. And then we have the other population who's not doing anything extreme in terms of exercise, but they're staying lean and they're choosing the right foods and they have strong psychosocial health and spiritual health, let's say. So there is a wide range of how to maximize longevity, actually. I don't think that any one of those is necessarily superior. I personally would like to see the Okinawan guys get on a little bit more resistance training. And I would personally like to see the maximally jacked folks get a little more cardio respiratorily fit. And I would personally like to see the maximum endurance guys be a little more careful with courting the overuse injuries and potentially uh, incurring negative adaptations that happen with a little too high of, of volume for training when you're when you're looking at orthopedic arthroscopic type effects over time. I think that there's a lot more wear and tear that can happen on on, on certain joints, especially in the lower body, when you're obsessed with building a maximal amount of endurance all the time and for some reason, there is no powerlifting longevity model in there. We can go down that road, but honestly, I see a bodybuilding type of model that does not neglect cardiorespiratory fitness as being the most protective against the imminent threats to longevity, foundationally being the development of sarcopenia and under the umbrella of frailty. So the development of frailty and sarcopenia specifically being age-related losses in lean body mass, namely muscle tissue, that is the foundation of where things start to go wrong. So as long as you maintain, you don't have to be jacked. You don't have to get like visually impressive muscularly. As long as you can very much avoid frailty, then you don't have to necessarily get, get totally jacked in order to maximize longevity. And you don't have to necessarily have the, the VO2 max of, of Michael Phelps to maximize longevity either. So it's very much of a moderate thing where your, where your food selection is good and the other lifestyle aspects are conducive to longevity, including your psychological health. You know, unfortunately, the way that humans are wired, we can almost do anything 
and be anything and still die at around, on average, 80 years old anyway. There are going to be folks like you and I who are going to live to about 120 just because we've been chosen like that. <laughs> that's so funny. You're like, yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm just like not in my head like, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> On 20, I want to go to 200. <laughs> but but yeah, I, I, yeah, in more, just to answer your question more directly after that really long runaround, you don't have to push any kinds of extremes and endurance adaptations or strength adaptations to maximize longevity. But from my perspective and in my observations, it gets to a point from the age, I want to say for some people as low as their forties, but certainly in their fifties and up where it is a battle to maintain lean body mass. And if you have developed an interest in resistance training, then you're better equipped to stave off the progression of muscle loss as it comes with age. And that is foundationally the biggest threat to longevity is losing your, your so-called the metabolic engine of the body. One thing I want to highlight for the people tuning in and those who are obsessed with longevity and being on this search for, this, for as long as humanely possible. And I say humanely, it's kind of funny because people are now talking about taking your conscious, putting it in a robot to maintain. That's a, that's a story for another time. But anyway, about maximizing longevity, I want to say that that's kind of like a, a target, but it sort of guarantees an improved quality of life in the moment. You know what I mean? So we're talking about longevity, sure. It's beautiful. It's so special to try to live as long as possible. But really, it's an effort that, and the inevitable consequence of that effort is an improved quality of life in the moment. Would you agree with that? I haven't even really thought of it that way. So that's very insightful perspective. I like that. Yeah, because I mean, I'll tell you what, I think that what I really want to do as a physiologist and as an evidence-based content creator is sure, I want to teach people how to live longer. But for me, the most important thing is, okay, maybe you'll live a few extra years, but but let's focus on this moment. Let's focus on your quality of life right now. And I think that with everything that you've discussed, that's certainly a way to promote that. And one thing that I want to add is as a personal anecdote is I know that, for example, pursuing different kinds of training styles can be a way to maximize your satellite cells, right? And then that allows for changing muscle fiber types as your body sees fit. And so what it's allowed me to do is I can have months at a time where I do a lot of weightlifting and I put on a lot of type two fast switch fibers and I'm stronger, I'm quicker, et cetera. But then I can spend a couple of months on the bike and I'll get leaner, more type one, slow twitch fibers. I kind of will get smaller, so to speak. But because I'm approaching various types of training, I can easily switch from one to the other. Maybe a few years from now, we'll really have a solid answer as to what's the best exercise training for the sake of longevity. At least I'll have the satellite cells to help me make the transition. And so maybe that's a means of promoting, hey, why don't you just focus for the sake of quality of life? Why don't you focus on what you enjoy most, what's most consistent, challenge yourself either way, and you'll have the flexibility when the research comes up, so to speak, if your number one initiative is longevity. Another run down the rabbit hole there. But I have a follow-up question for you. As far as maximizing functional muscle capacity in older populations, and as far as maximizing muscle capacity in younger populations, if we look at like the 18 to 25-year-old male or female, should they be obsessed and completely focused on maximizing hypertrophy to maintain that amount of muscle? Or should they focus on finding a good balance that they can maintain mm. for the later years? Mm -hmm. 
You know what I mean? If you can take advantage of the anabolic response and if maintaining muscle as you age is so important, should we just try to get on as much mass as possible or should we try to find the lifestyle that can that we can maintain for the best quality of life and the best aging later on? Mm. It may be a complex question, but I think that you above all, probably the best, one of the best people in the world to answer this kind of question. My answer is that it depends on the preference of the individual and there's going to be a small subset of the general population that just really loves bodybuilding. And at least observationally, a lot of the, the, the healthiest and most age-defying people that I've personally seen have taken up bodybuilding as a hobby. And if they didn't die from a heart attack from excessive use of uh, anabolic steroids, they're functionally like a 30-year-old when they're 60. So yeah, with a small subset of the population, I would encourage people to take up bodybuilding and try to, to max out hypertrophy. But I would also caution that people who are always on this really aggressive permabulk type of situation where they're highly overweight or even obese for half the year, and then the other half of the year, they're just trying to chisel off that fat. I don't think that's necessarily conducive to longevity. That's a really tough question, dude. That, that's an interesting question, a very tough question. I think you give us a pretty, a pretty solid answer. And I think that at the end of the day, it really comes back to taking an individualized approach and see what you see fit. Maybe you want to you know, have some muscle, but then you want to do the Okinawa stuff. Maybe you want to do some gardening and you know, who knows? Maybe your psyche is on point. You talked a little bit about, well, you just briefly mentioned bulking and cutting. I'd love to jump into that with you. I know that we're sort of short on time. So can you tell us a little bit about, is there an absolute number or rather a percentage that people should pursue to put on muscle without gaining excess fat? And is there a similar approach that you can take to do a cut? Can you, should you choose a number? Should you choose a percentage? And how does tracking your calories fall into that? From kind of a bottom line, practical sense, most people, if you, if you look at the range of beginners to intermediates. And that right there is a whole other discussion. What makes a beginner? What makes an intermediate? But generally speaking, you take somebody who's just, just beginning, they can gain about two pounds of, uh, of muscle per month without putting on excess body fat. And then as you move along in your training age and become more advanced, then you have to be happy with about a pound a month gain in muscle which is nothing to sneeze at. I mean, when was the last time you didn't see somebody for two years and they were 24 pounds of muscle heavier? You know, it, even that is, is a stretch. When I first started lifting, I put on 25 pounds of muscle naturally in a year and I, it completely changed my quality of life. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Way to go, man. Did you use any help for that gain? Absolutely zero help. I mean, but I'll tell you why I think I was able to do that so effortlessly was because I was taking medication at the time that suppressed my hunger very significantly. Mm -hmm. And so I quit the medication and then I started training and eating unlike ever before. And so I think that I was sort of like in a, in a malnourished state to begin with. I was very skinny. I was about five, nine and 126 pounds. And now I'm pretty much the same height and I'm 170 pounds now, but that was my first year lifting. It was, a, it was 25 pounds straight and my quality of life just, I mean, it was unlike anything ever before. That's an impressive gain. Either way, even if it was a rebound gain, you know, that's a lot. But that would be the barometer for how fast 
you're gaining or whether, whether your rate of gain is too quick. So another way to look at what is too fast of a rate of gain for the amount of fat you're putting on is anytime you're exceeding like a one-to-one ratio of lean mass gain to fat gain, then that's your surplus that you're running, your caloric surplus that you're running on a daily, weekly, monthly basis is too high. So you want to cut off your fat gains at about a one-to-one to your lean gains. And if, if at all possible, we would more want to do like a two-to-one ratio of lean to fat gain as you're running a caloric surplus. And all of this is usually achievable, funny enough, with something very simple, such as about 250 to 500 calories as a surplus target per day. And so the more of a newbie you are, the more you'll be able to favorably put the 500 calorie surplus to work. Whereas if you are closer to your potential for muscle gain, then a little bit more towards the 250 calorie mark as a surplus would be less conducive to excess fat gain. So now those are very conservative numbers. I recently wrote a paper once again with Brad on the caloric surplus required to optimize muscle gains. And there's actually research out there showing that up to a thousand ish calorie surplus is still directed towards energy production and lean tissue partitioning in untrained subjects. So in untrained subjects, you can really go crazy with the targeted caloric surplus without putting fat on them. But from a practical programming perspective, I would rather look at sort of the lower end that that would be a little bit safer for programming caloric surpluses. So with beginners programming the caloric surplus, somewhere between like 500 to potentially 1,000 calories above uh, estimated maintenance requirements would be an appropriate surplus. And with intermediate and advanced-ish guys, then you're looking at 250 calorie surplus being more appropriate for the advanced guys and maybe 250 to 500 being more appropriate for most of us, the intermediates. Okay. So 250 to 500 calorie surplus to run in order to target that one to two pounds of lean mass gain per month that will not result in more than one to two pounds of fat gain per month. And preferably if we can cut that in half, then that's all the better for, for targeted bulking. Now, with that said, Andres, there is a phenomenon called recomposition or recomp, as we call it in the community, which is the simultaneous muscle gain and fat loss that happens in beginners and some intermediates. So, you know, you can target these caloric surpluses for targeting this specific goal of of muscle gain. But what happens a lot of the time in beginners and some intermediates is a simultaneous drop in fat loss, especially if you've had a significant improvement to the previous program and you're eating better, you're recovering better, you're more consistent Then what happens is people end up seeing the recomp phenomenon happen. And that's always a welcome thing, but it's not always necessarily going to show up on the, the bathroom scale. So can we speak a little bit about, say, if it fits your macros? So let's say, you know, considering, okay, maybe you're going, you're adding 250 calories, 500 calories if you're a beginner, going 1,000 calories above. Okay, can you tell us a little bit about dirty bulking 
isn't necessary. Can you tell us a little bit about if it fits your macros? Should we consider the quality? And can you tell us how this influences the satiety effect? Food quality influences satiety in a couple of respects. So usually with ultra processed and highly refined foods, then they tend to be more energy dense. So they tend to have more calories per unit of volume. And so what happens is you end up right off the bat biasing things toward the direction of you eating more calories much more easily, just right off the bat by virtue of the energy density of the foods. And the, the second thing is food quality. We can define that by degree of processing or degree of refinement, or we can define it as the degree of micronutrition per calorie. So that would be energy density. And, uh, and if you put all of those things together, then you can begin to define a high quality food versus a, a low quality food. Did you mean nutri uh, nutrient density? Micronutrient density. Micronutrient density would be the amount of micronutrition per calorie. So calorie density would be the amount of energy or calories per unit of volume or mass of the given serving. So those are two separate things that, yeah, we should, we should distinguish. And food quality is a little bit harder to define. Because there are some foods that do have a lot of energy density by virtue of, for example, their fat content, but they are also good sources of micronutrition that can commonly go under consumed at the general population level. Just to give an example of that, omega-3 fatty acids, they're an essential nutrient that happen to be within the context of a high energy density, but they're also highly under consumed at the general population level. So it can get kind of complicated, but just as, as speaking in very general terms, higher quality foods tend to be lower in calories and higher in micronutrition. And they are a little bit closer to their native state or they are in completely in their native state without a bunch of processing and refinement by the time they get to your plate or to the shelves or to the package that they're in on the shelves. So in other words, the more in quotes, natural <laughs> a food is, then the higher quality it is. And distinct exceptions really center around protein powders. So we can see that protein powders are highly engineered, highly processed types of foods and that are very far removed from their natural source and state. But functionally, and, and the effects that they've shown in the literature have all been positive, from both the standpoint of clinical parameters as well as body composition. And they're, they're also uh, nutritious. They also have, have a high amount of nutrition for the amount of calories they provide. So protein powders would be sort of the exception as far as calling foods low quality when they've been refined and, and highly processed. Protein powders kind of sit in their own corner as the exception. But with other foods, carbohydrate sources, you can almost bet pretty much the more refined and more processed the carbohydrate source, the lower quality it's going to be. Fats also fall into that, that definition for the most part as well. So yeah, the food quality thing, how does it relate to satiety? We can look at the, the different food groups 
and the different food types and see how, how that influences things. So if you look at carbohydrate quality and how that influences satiety, the high quality carbohydrates or the carbohydrates that have been processed and engineered the least are generally going to have the highest water content and the highest fiber content. And so those two elements would contribute positively to hunger control. So if you could look at, for example, the difference between eating a whole apple versus consuming its equivalent in apple juice, there's going to be distinct differences there in the time and the effort it takes you to eat the food and also how long you stay satisfied after consuming those things. And we can kind of go down the list of, of the food groups. Like if you were to, for example, eat a, a handful of almonds or a, a tablespoon or two of oil, <laughs> there's distinct differences there in the satiating effects. So if you were to take a diet that was completely kind of liquefied and engineered and concocted into these various food like products, then there's a good chance that they will not be as satiating as foods that are less processed, less refined. And so usually when you look at foods that are less processed and less refined, then, well, they're higher quality foods. And this is how we, we make the general leap from the less processed and less refined your, your diet is, the more satiating it's going to be. And even the mere act of chewing foods, it adds to the satiating experience. It adds to the brain signaling that says, okay, I'm actually consuming something and I'm actually going to not need to eat something in the next hour to survive. In a nutshell, that's how uh, food quality relates to satiety. If I can make an exception here, and this is something that you and I talked about at the very beginning. With some foods, we just don't have the evidence to make these judgments. So we, we talked about the comparison of beef and chicken and whey, this direct comparison of post-exercise intake and how it influenced body composition. It wasn't as if whey got outperformed by those two other guys, right? Because whey would be the, the protein powder one. The protein powder didn't get outperformed. And even in acute studies, when we compare whey to to other proteins, to slower absorbed proteins like casein. It doesn't get outperformed from a satiety standpoint by the slower proteins. So there are exceptions here to this whole thing. For, for all we know, you can have all of your darn protein intake from protein powder and do just as well from a hunger control standpoint. But we don't, we just don't have the definitive answers from that. But when you look at the other food groups, and I'm going to say especially carbohydrates, if your sources are refined, processed, highly engineered, then that will impact satiety in a bad way. Yeah, it seems that there's especially high variability when it comes to carbohydrates because of the degree of refinement that they can endure and how satiating some of the very low glycemic carbohydrates can be, for example, lentils and quinoa. And then you have on the other end, maybe you know something like pure sugar. So it's like there's so much more variability. So that's where you should really consider their satiety effect and the overall nutrient density and health benefit that they can provide. I want to add just real quick that the concept of hyperpalatability, that word basically means the capability of a food to cause passive or unconscious or unintended overconsumption 
due to its high level of deliciousness. <laughs> and that would mean flavor enhancement and these sensory cues that it evokes that kind of corners the individual into just eating a, a lot of the given food. So hyper palatability is the ease of consumption of a food. And in order to create hyper palatability, it's usually a combination of refined carbohydrates and fat at roughly an even ratio. And then the flavoring agents added to that, that would enhance the whole effect, like, like adding salt to the mix as well. These refined carb fat combinations, sometimes with, and sometimes without salt, that would constitute hyper palatability. If your diet is in quotes, Westernized, then there's going to be a certain amount of these refined carb and fat combinations with the salt. And you basically have a recipe for overconsumption of total calories. So yeah, I just wanted to get that concept in there. Since we're talking about food quality and satiety, we have to talk about hyper palatability and how it negatively impacts hunger control and satiety. I really appreciate that because I wasn't even aware of the degree of the negative connotation that it should carry. I mean, I just thought it was something was extra tasty, but that also leaves room to appreciate how foods that aren't hyperpalatable can be tasty without the unwanted cravings after consuming it. So I like how you highlighted that there's an unwanted response that follows that. It's not just that they're tasty, but there's an unwanted, you know, it promotes an unwanted craving following its, its consumption. It's addictive. I really appreciate that. So let me ask you some, some of these rapid fire questions. Tell us a little bit about carbs in the post-workout meal. Two twins, they're exactly the same. They're eating the same exact food, but one of the twins is having carbs with the post-workout meal. One isn't having carbs with the post-workout meal. Would one of those twins see greater gains? And let's say they're both intermediate style lifters. There wouldn't be a difference in gains. And if we go back to the concept of the anabolic window, it's rooted in comparisons where they looked at glycogen resynthesis originally. And so if you delay the intake of carbohydrate post-exercise, then you're going to delay the replenishment of intramuscular glycogen stores. What they did from this point was they looked at the addition of protein and or amino acids to the carbohydrate post-exercise and how that might influence muscle protein synthesis. And they came to the conclusion that, okay, well, you have to have protein or amino acids with carbs in order to maximize muscle protein synthesis post-exercise. But this conclusion sat for about 10 years until they tested higher protein doses. So when I say higher protein doses, they tested like eight to 15 grams, the equivalent eight to 15 grams of protein when they made these prior conclusions. And then when they started testing 20 to 25 grams of protein post-exercise by itself versus 20 to 25 grams of protein with a a robust amount of, of highly glycemic carbs, they saw no difference in uh, muscle protein synthesis between the, the two treatments because there apparently was an anabolic ceiling of protein dosing beyond which uh, extra carbohydrate would not have any impact. And that brings us to what, what we talked about previously. We thought that limit was 20 to 25 grams, but now we're finding out it's just about double that well, at least. <laughs> so, so yeah, I would have to say if these twins are running this program 
and they're consuming at least 20 to 25 grams of protein post-exercise, then any additional carbohydrate that is accompanied with that protein dose is not going to further the, the anabolic response. And what if they were both at the ceiling of protein intake? What if they both maximize, completely maximize the protein intake, and then one of them added an extra 500 calories from carbs and the other added an extra 500 calories from fat? If they were truly maxed out in terms of total calories to maximize lean growth, total calories for the day, then the additional calories from either carb or fat would not make any meaningful difference, honestly. They would both gain a little bit of body fat. And the only way we know this is from these tightly controlled overfeeding studies where they, they fed folks about a thousand calories of either fat or carbs on top of their maintenance intakes. And all that happened was a little bit of gain in body fat, regardless of whether it was from carbs or from fat. But it was a little tiny little bit more fat gain with the fat overfeed than with the carb overfeed. Okay. And now let's say for the sake of maintaining this comparison, because I think it's a good sort of way to visualize, you know, you have two identical conditions and then adding another element to that to see what influence it can have. Let's say in these two twins, everything is matched except one of them is taking a super physiological dose of antioxidants following the workout session. Will that diminish the anabolic response? Let's say they take either antioxidants or they take an excess of omega-3 following the, the workout session. Are they diminishing their anabolic drive significantly? That area of research is very mixed, but I would give the advantage to omega-3 because there are some data showing that high antioxidant dosing post-exercise can inhibit the anabolic response. Whereas, you know, with omega-3, the bulk of the, the evidence leans in favor of it, at least having a modest benefit towards the anabolic response. Final question for you here, BCAAs or essential amino acids? Essential amino acids, because there's more than just leucine, valine, and isoleucine that creates a, a maximal muscle protein synthetic response. You need the full complement of the essential amino acids in order to maximize this uh, growth response. And I, I would honestly, I would even say that there is some contribution to the non-essential amino acids in the diet as well. But, but for sure, EAAs over just the three branch chain amino acids. Awesome. I just want to say, I mean, this has been incredible. Having you on the show has been really like a dream come true. I'm so happy to see how much material we were able to cover in such a short amount of time. So thank you for being so thorough with us. Thank you for doing the research justice and for helping us apply science to improve the quality of life. It was such a pleasure to have you, Alan. And I really hope that we can uh, have you back in the near future. Is there anything that you want to share with my listeners regarding maybe any upcoming projects that you have or anything that you're really excited about? I know that you have a, a research review and, and, and a book that you're going to publish. How can people best access this and where can they find you online? AlanAragon.com is where you can find all my stuff. I do have a book that's coming out in June. I'll give you um, all the links to the pre-order for that. And this book is, I'm really excited about it because I've worked on it for a solid year. I wrote my first book in 2006 to 2007, a book called Girth Control. And it was just like, I wanted to present the evidence-based nutrition to the community. 
And but McDonald called you out. He called me out, man. He's like, what is this? Um, yeah. He like he found it. He found a, a factual error in there, and I'm like, dang, I'm never gonna do that again. So, <laughs> um, so it's been 15 years since since I I wrote that book, and I I desperately needed to do a follow up to the book with the current research, and of course during the course of the 15 years that uh, between now and then. I've been able to collaborate on a bunch of the, the research projects and, and research studies and papers that, that comprise the modern practice guidelines for trainers and, and nutritionists, which is pretty awesome. So yeah, that book is coming out early June. Like I said, I'll give you the links. I'm excited about that. And in the meantime, I am maintaining my monthly research review subscription service, which I've been doing since 2008. I think that's my best work. I have a, a guest on every month who contributes just stellar, stellar stuff. I have a different guest every month. You just have to see it to, to know what it's about. It's the research review that started all the other research reviews on the on the landscape right now. So I pioneered that that niche. I've been very honored and privileged to have been a part of uh, initiating. That's that. It's alanaragon.com. And thank you so much, Andres, for inviting me and, you know, getting into the weeds over here. It's, it's always super fun. So I know there's a lot that we didn't cover, but I'll be more than thrilled to come back at some point in the future and cover those things. So yeah, definitely keep in touch. Thank you so much. And, and for the record, you, you never offended me in, in, throughout the podcast. Not once was I offended. <laughs> love it. Man. I, I love that. I, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so thank you so much, Alan, and uh, hopefully we'll see you soon. Okay, my brother. You take care. <laughs>